Thank you very much, Gary. It's a pleasure to be back at Trinity College. I was here in March of 2013 for an Archaeological Institute of America talk. Um, and believe it or not, this uh, wine cellar was found just months later in the summer of 2013. So uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful chance, uh, an opportunity I appreciate to come back and kind of update uh, many of you who I see uh, as familiar faces from, from 2013. In addition to covering uh, the discovery of this wine cellar, I do have to admit that in many ways this is kind of uh, an outline of, of my upcoming book as well. So I'll, I'll reach a little bit beyond just the wine cellar and, and provide some background uh, as well. So last time we left off in 2013, we we're talking about the search for, again, commodities in the ancient Mediterranean. Uh, and as my book starts out, it doesn't actually start in the Mediterranean proper, but in the Sahara Desert. Many of you heard this in 2013, but for the sake of those who weren't here, I'll go over this quite briefly. How does the Sahara compare? Uh, how does it relate to the Mediterranean and the origins of organic commodities? Well, as some of you might know, uh, the Sahara is an interesting uh, place. It isn't just this kind of desolate sandy area uh, that we know today from movies and other types of, uh, of photos. But in fact, if you look at it through a geological type of reference, in fact, we see that fairly regularly it goes through this back and forth cycle where it, it turns into a savanna. And this is a fairly recent discovery within the last 10 years. So right now we are in this very dry kind of climate, but this was not always the, the case. Uh, for those of you wondering why it goes through the cycle, as far as we can tell, it's due to this very slight wobble in the Earth's rotation. And as a result, every several thousand years, it goes through this back and forth. And here it is documented through uh, the, the, the uh, climate of how wet it actually is. And you can see here, right around 3000 BC, uh, the, the, the climate becomes increasingly, it just drops in terms of how arid it is, it becomes increasingly arid, and then it just kind of levels out. One thing to note is it's not so important even in absolute terms necessarily, whether it's wet or drier, it's just through these uh, dramatic changes it causes in, uh, in, in terms of human habitation, there are dramatic changes as well. So once you're stabilized, you're usually set. Um, what happened, as far as we can tell, around 3000 BC is, as a result of the Sahara becoming a desert, people got pushed to the periphery. We know in the middle of what's now the inhospitable desert, desert there are uh, paintings on, in cave walls, uh, remains of dried lakes and riverbeds. Um, what we know is, right around 3000, there was a huge population influx into the Nile Valley. And this is similar to, let's say, people heading to Silicon Valley. Uh, as important as the natural resources is human capital. Hum in, in essence, innovate, uh, innovative minds. That's what's happening around 3000 BC, and it leads to things like the Great Pyramid. Uh, how does this connect to the Mediterranean? So this is around 2500, after it's five centuries or so after it's become uh, very arid. You have all these people who can design things, build things, and things and complex societies develop as a reason. Uh, but it's not just Egypt. Um, with all of the commodities, uh, organic and inorganic, uh, the, we know that the Egyptians are connected to the Mediterranean through the Nile Delta, and people are realizing now that, through at least a certain degree, Egypt was the catalyst uh, right during the early Bronze Age that then uh, develop, helped develop the entire Eastern Mediterranean. So perhaps without 
the Sahara drying out, there would be no ancient Egypt as we know it. If there's no ancient Egypt as we know it, there might be no early Greece as we know it. And who knows what that means for later classical Greece and, and Rome. Those are issues that we're just trying to figure out now. Uh, for our time today, uh, the fundamental questions are how do we reconstruct this early trade in commodities and how did this early trade help define later activities? For those who are curious, if I could shamelessly plug it, this will be chapter one of my, my book. Um, so let's fast forward several centuries later as we get to the second millennium uh, BC, which is going to be the focus of our time today. By then, we know, let's say 1800 BC, we have this fairly intricate network. We know fairly large ships traveled around the periphery of the Eastern Mediterranean, trading things like copper, um, uh, lapis, all the way from um, Afghanistan through the, the Fertile Crescent. What we don't know as well are the perishable organic commodities. And that's been the focus of my research the last 10 years. It started uh, at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. I saw these fantastic small vessels. Uh, they all shared the characteristics of being uh, fairly elaborate, fineware, well-made. But at the same time, they occurred in places that are fairly widespread in the Mediterranean. So Greece, Cyprus, and the southern Levant slash Egypt. They apparently served the same function, but what did they contain? Until you know, 10, 15 years ago, we would pretty much have to guess based upon the shape of the vessel, if we got, if we're fortunate, perhaps the vessels were inscribed or they're depicted in tomb paintings or they're written about, but for the most part, we were in the dark. That's when I decided that Mediterranean pharmacopoeia is important, but to get to it, we got to figure out the organic aspect of it, because that was the foundation, as important as copper trade was, uh, we know that that was dwarfed by the trade in wines, perfumes, and purple dye, all these kind of things I'll talk about today. But what direct evidence can we get from antiquity when it comes to perishable organics? That's how the Arkin project started. I wanted this to be different from past uh, studies. Some people argue that modern organic residue analysis started around 1990. Um, I guess it depends on how you define modern. It's really with the advent of analytical techniques such as gas chromatography that this archeological method has uh, really risen to the forefront. I tell people who think that it is just a recent phenomenon if you kind of use a broader definition, you can even go back a century or so. A famous example is as a student in the Egyptian section of the University Museum, I found this bowl full of dried out dates. And I said, I wonder how they know it's dates, you can barely make it out. And there was a handwritten note from a century ago and it said, apparently dates as verified by a student, and you look, there's a big chunk missing. I'm not sure if they ate it. Uh, what they did, if they did eat it, I guess you can say that is organic residue analysis. Uh, but we use more sophisticated methods, and students are very thankful about that. Uh, to make this different from past studies, I wanted, I realized that we have to do extractions in the field. That separates it from uh, this divide that's traditionally existed between lab work and field work. Uh, there are several reasons I'll get into why that's important. And also, I wanted a library of these residues. So instead of having 10, 15, where you can get some limited knowledge but not too much else, I wanted to make this study archaeologically relevant. It wasn't enough to me to go through a binary exercise. It has wine, yes or no. And I'm hoping with this wine cellar that we, in fact, accomplished uh, going way beyond just this yay or nay kind of exercise. 
So we're talking about Kabri in northern Israel today, and the focus is right here uh, to the west, um, the, the so-called central courtyard, or uh, there's different names for it, was excavated in the late 80s by Kempinski and uh, Niemeyer. Uh, we focus more in this area. Uh, in 2011, the famous Orthostat building was found, which we think is a banquet hall, an entire bowl skeleton, and all kinds of other feasting items. And we think now that this wine cellar su uh, supplied the different types of banquets slash parties they had in this banquet hall uh, with the elite. And I just want to point out before I move on, because it's not going to be shown in later slides, this little small dark mark which is this little installation into the ground where we think they prepared the wine. This was done during the last day of the season in 2013. One thing I do want to point out in case people, uh, people always say, how easy was this to accomplish? Uh, the simple answer is it wasn't easy. Um, if I could do this over again, would I do it in front of the public? I say, of course. Privately, I wonder sometimes. It, it was quite difficult. Uh, at Cobley, we started in 2009 with this pilot study, and we promptly pretty much struck out. So do we give up there? Uh, being uh, persistent, the following year, we took different types of samples. I do want to point out 2009, I was handed the samples, so I couldn't get them myself. I said, let's try it one more time, but let me get the samples myself. And in fact, when I did that, the, the results were much better. And then finally, 2011, when we decided to proceed with a, a more thorough study, in fact, around half of the vessels came out with results. And of course, that's much dependent on the state of preservation, as I'll show you. And that leads us to 2013. Uh, this is an ideal situation, uh, a room, a wine cellar, pretty much uh, caught in, the, in, its, in its height of being used without any disturbance. And as a result, pretty much every vessel came out with results, which is, um, I think, somewhat unusual. So 2011, we had uh, like a stone bowl. It had things like cholesterol. Uh, we had this chocolate and white vessel, which had wine, which we're about to publish. It actually has a wine that we think is quite different from the wine cellar, so that's kind of interesting, different additives. But this is what we found in 2013 that some of you might have seen in like the New York Times and other newspapers. When we came upon this room, uh, the only thing we found at first was the very t top of this vessel that we lovingly called Bessie for some reason. Um, it was, in fact, the first vessel uh, found pretty much in situ ever at the site. So we knew right away it was special. We didn't want to get our hopes up because when you do, what happens is you dig around it and it ends up being the only vessel. So we tempered our enthusiasm, but within several days, in fact, we found that there were many more vessels intact. And uh, at that point, we had additional challenges to overcome. Uh, I'll point out those challenges in a second. What is a characteristic of these field extractions and why they're so important versus past studies is I felt that early integration was quite uh, a vital component. When you have a vessel that was excavated 100 years ago, uh, washed, handled, glued, um, resulting in results like nicotine, uh, it wasn't a far leap to guess that if we can get vessels as close to excavation as possible, we'll get better results. 
That's why I want to go into the field. Uh, I also want to be fairly comprehensive, not just one or two vessels here and there, but we had to do it with an archaeological purpose to answer archaeological questions. And finally, a non-destructive process for two reasons. One, archaeologists typically don't like uh, pulverizing pottery, which has been the typical way to extract residues. And number two, it, it, it incredibly slows down the process to destroy pottery. The actual pulverizing process, but you also pretty much have to get extra permits. So we've proven that this works, and now we think that it's the, the way to go for the results that I'll, I'll point out. So here is the extraction process uh, in a nice poster, uh, eventually leading to these samples. Uh, this is what we're trying to get to. Uh, I know this is probably a nightmare for some of you. In fact, I got this from uh, a blog called I Hate My Roommates. Um, I know this doesn't look like any of your rooms, I hope. Um, but maybe an archaeologist 2,000 years from now is hoping that you do leave a room like this. Uh, hopefully there's no disaster like an earthquake. But um, we're trying to get to these type of residues. Uh, in addition, if they're vessels that have a very singular purpose, all the better. Because if you have multi-uses for a vessel, it kind of clouds the results. So we don't like utilitarian basins and pitchers because they often have all kinds of different things. And one thing that residue analysis doesn't tell us is the chronology in which they, they contain these different organics. So we like wine cellars. Uh, we quickly uh, girded ourselves for the difficult task of clearing out this wine cellar once Bessie was discovered. We did the math in our heads, and immediately the directors, what we realized is we weren't actually going to finish. We found Bessie during the first week of a five uh, to six week season, and based upon several days of work, we knew that we were in grave danger of leaving vessels either in the field where the results would be lost, or we would be pulling them and doing it in a haphazard fashion. Uh, the way we solved that is we actually instituted a double shift. As harsh as that sounds, it's not, it wasn't the same group, but we pulled every other air, uh, all the volunteers from other areas, and we had them excavate in the afternoons as the original team excavated in the mornings. And with this double shift, we finished the day before the season ended. And that's in large part, thanks to these wonderful volunteers, why I'm standing here before you today. So we, I took samples in the field from the same part of every vessel, I want it to be as consistent uh, with every part of the process. Uh, we then, I took, then took it to the, the field school where I put it through the extraction process right away. Uh, the entire uh, sequence of events from sampling the sherds in the field to uh, analysis at the Department of Chemistry at Brandeis took around three weeks. And that is on the magnitude of 10 times faster at least. Uh, um, than studies in the past. And of course, there is kind of like that inefficient transfer, as I call it, where uh, somebody in the lab receives a box with a shirt. They don't know where it came from, how it was handled, but we got rid of that divide because I was the one that took the shirts, extracted them in the field, and then brought the samples in on the plane all the way back and hoped that they wouldn't get confiscated, which they didn't, or I wouldn't be here. Uh, so we go through this extraction process, filter them into these vials, and eventually now we have around 10,000 of these samples. And we think it's uh, with certainty that it's the largest sample of its um, catalog or library of its kind. 
And now we could say, let's, I want to study amphoras over 2,000 years from 50 sites in the Mediterranean, we can do that. If I want to study it in one assemblage at a site, I could do that. So we can ask these interesting questions now that we have uh, this library. After we extract the residues, uh, we prepare them for uh, the instrumentation process. And what that means typically in this day and age is GCMS, my original instrument at Penn. We have an instrument on Crete that we sometimes use due to export reasons. But ideally, we go to Brandeis, where we have uh, a GCMS that's only a couple years old, which is where the results from today come from. It produces these chromatograms. Uh, it separates your sample into discrete compounds uh, based upon molecular weight and uh, in, in some degree polarity. And based upon the GC results and then the subsequent mass spec, which then characterizes each of these peaks, we can then uh, surmise what was originally contained in these uh, vessels. So here, this is the actual shirt from jar six, which is right behind me. And this is the chromatogram from it. Um, this is where the difficulty comes. I'm not going to talk about it so much right now. I think in our next session with the chemistry department, I'll talk more about it. But this is somewhat uncharted territory because you have here uh, a mass spec, a, a reference sample for colchicine. And often, I mean, with the wine cellar, the results were quite good. But this is one example from mainland Greece. This is the mass spectrum that results. And as we know, this is quite different from a modern type of study. Can you relate these two together? Most chemists today would say no, if you use a purely uh, uh, modern kind of perspective. But if you look at the fragments, they are quite similar. So we're trying to figure out where does, can we say this seems to be this type of compound. Um, but we get help. Not only do we look at the chemistry, but we can look at all types of other records, documentation, we know that certain vessels like a Kylex contain wine typically, amphoras contain wine. We can look at modern ethnographic examples, so on and so forth. And from there, we make a judgment call that we think is fairly sound. Uh, one way to hedge your bets is to get a reference uh, standard. Here it is for syringic acid, prepared exactly the same way as the ancient samples. Uh, and then using both the chromatogram and the, and the resultant uh, mass spec, then you compare it to the ancient one. Um, and in fact, uh, it's a perfect match in both the chromatogram and the, the mass spec as published. And uh, we verified it with HPLC, which is always a good thing to do. Because before we published this, we wanted this to be kind of the, the flagship that kind of starts things off before we then get more into the gray areas. Can we publish things like colchicine um, when they, don't, they look a little bit more obscure? But we want to nail it first with this very good example at this wine cellar. Uh, we also felt that uh, in 100 years, we don't want to be potentially criticized by saying, look at these people. They found the only wine cellar ever discovered in this era, uh, as we, we often do as you know, armchair critics uh, with archaeologists who are long gone. Um, so we actually spent money to do this fairly innovative uh, um, mapping process called LIDAR, in essence, light radar, and it's much better than what's been done in the past decades. It's accurate to two millimeters, and the reason why we want to do that is in the future, if someone said, where did they get the shirt from? What was the elevation? Maybe it was in, in, in contact with groundwater. We've published all the data, including the coordinates of each shirt and each jar, 
people can then figure out if there were certain things that we missed. So we did want to do the LIDAR process, and it's absolutely a remarkable thing. And you can see, in fact, these aren't just a rough outline, but these are all millions of points. Here's a zoom in on Bessie, and you can, in fact, see Bessie herself, if I can call it her that, um, has tens of thousands of points, each of them accurate to two millimeters. And if you look carefully, you can even see every crack, every nook in, in Bessie. You can actually do a cross-section. Uh, what we're doing next is actually taking vectors, and we're hoping, based upon geophysical studies, to reconstruct perhaps how, where the jars were before we think an earthquake hit. So that's our, our next step um, in terms of the mapping. Um, it, I would exp I'll explain this in a second so you don't go blind. Uh, this is all published in the PLOS One article. Uh, but right away we knew that, if, it, like past studies, if you have too few samples and too many variables, it's, it's an unhealthy process. Uh, we want to get many samples and limit the variables. So as best as possible, we know it's not perfect like lab, uh, lab, you know, lab conditions, but I took shirts from approximately the same spot in every jar, um, approximately the same size, uh, so on and so forth, and the end result was, um, in fact, 32 out of the 32 jars tested contained tartaric acid, and all but three contained syringic acid, which uh, was better than we had hoped. And we can conclude uh, with confidence uh, that this was, in fact, an ancient wine cellar with good consistency between each jar. With some differences I'll point out in a second. One exception was jar 11. I took a sample down here near the base, as usual, which is where the residues are typically best. But I also took an additional sample up at the top. These are questions that people have, when residue studies are done, which is quite rare, these are questions people have never asked. Um, they're just lucky to have a sample and assured. Uh, we, have this one, we have this wonderful opportunity, so I want to compare results to verify them, but to see if there's any differences. And lo and behold, they did have differences. Um, the ratios are quite consistent. So this is the sample higher up. Oops. Hmm. This is the sample higher up in the jar. This is near the base. Uh, the ratios uh, between tartaric acid and different compounds are, are, are quite consistent. Um, what should be noted, though, is, and this has never been talked about, the shirt higher up um, didn't contain around half the diagnostic compounds. So that reveals to us, in fact, where you do, we, we suspected this, but here is at least one uh, data point that points to uh, taking samples from the top, you might miss things because it comes into less contact with the original organics. What were the, some of the additives found in these jars? Uh, like the, the biomarkers for, uh, in addition to the biomarkers for wine, tartaric and syringic acid, which syringic acid coming from Malvadine is, is related to red wine, uh, we have all types of other compounds that then we have to figure out. So this is where this is arguably the toughest part of the process to be able to say uh, with some certainty what these compounds that survived derive from in antiquity, and this is what often makes uh, some scholars nervous. Uh, my point is, rather than being hesitant to publish and make some interpretive, you know, do an interpretive exercise, why not publish the compounds you did discover, make these proposals 
And those proposals can always be adjusted if there's more evidence um, to speak otherwise. But this kind of makes sense from not just a, a study of a phytochemistry, but also from documents and other things I'll point out in a second. So here uh, are the, is the graph of the chemical occurrence of these potential additives. One thing you'll see is that some of them don't have these additional additives. And that really stood out to me, and I was trying to figure out why that might be. It could be as simple as it just wasn't preserved. But the fact that we have over 30 samples uh, led me to believe that we could do additional exercises never done in the past, make additional conclusions with this sample size about what might actually be going on in this wine cellar. So beyond this binary yay or nay I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, what supports our interpretation of the wine cellar having a resonated kind of herbal wine? We have documentation such as uh, the 16th, 15th century Ebers papyrus from Egypt that is the earliest kind of recipe for what's known as Egyptian kaifi. In fact, Egyptian kaifi is mentioned as early as Old Kingdom Egypt in the pyramid text, but there's not too many details about it. By the time we get to uh, the classical authors, uh, in particular Plutarch, we have quite detailed explanations, presuming that what Plutarch is talking about is a tradition that stretches back you know, 1,500 years before his time, and even perhaps 2,500 years before his time, we get this nice recipe of how to make Egyptian kaifi. It's often added to wine. In fact, uh, Plutarch mentions it's used as a potion uh, and taken internally to cleanse the internal, internal organs. And we think something like this was going on in the wine cellar. It wasn't just to preserve the wine, but there were also additional con uh, considerations about uh, even things like psychoactivity and what this type of, these type of additives might do uh, for an individual, either real or believed to be true. We also have Mari tablets just to the north of, uh, of the site of Kabri, and this kind of it points out that, in fact, there are different types of wine, just like today, strong wines, sweet wines. And then it mentions these herbal aromatics, which quite fit quite well with the additives we found um, in the wine cellar. And the, and the Mari tablets are contemporaneous with the site of Cabri. So the conclusion is that we believe that the Cabri jars contain resonated herbal wines of remarkable consistency and special quality for consumption in the immediate environs by the elite. Uh, back then, in particular, you didn't drink wine unless uh, you were fairly well-to-do. Uh, beer was more readily accessible. Um, the ingredients that you needed were preserved well, that you can make it fairly in a large part of the year. As we know with wine, uh, grapes are harvested at a certain time, and there's a certain season to make wine. So it's, it's at this point, the, the reserve of, of the elite. What were the next steps that I alluded to earlier based upon the compounds that we found? Uh, one thing I suspected, because we had done the LIDAR studies, is we might be able to discern how different parts of this wine cellar functioned. Uh, we had some clues already, like this that installation from the aerial photo I showed you, which is right underneath jar 26. 
and we had things like this antechamber in front, this entranceway here, perhaps uh, definitely one entrance this way towards the main road, and possibly another entrance here that we're going to excavate um, next summer. And as I grouped the ingredients, what we found, in fact, is there seem to be patterns based upon their ingredients. For instance, these jars lined up here, if you compare them to that chart I showed you earlier with the chemical occurrence uh, in each jar, these are the jars that typically only had evidence for wine and uh, one simple resin. These jars were in various states of, uh, in, in terms of their contents. So we think perhaps they're a processing wine here. And in an interesting twist, uh, it's difficult to say whether the absence of syringic acid in those three jars indicate that they contain white wine, uh, but in a curious fashion, those that are lacking syringic acid are grouped together. So are they white wine? If it is, we think it's one of the earliest uh, definitive proofs of, of white wine in, in history, which would be quite um, fascinating. There's, we admit there is a possibility that uh, syringic acid just doesn't survive in these for, th for, for whatever reason. But we think there's some proof, perhaps. The jars are being conserved right now, and we're hoping that these white wine jars potentially are, if they are white wine, they're uh, differentiated some way whether they're inscribed, whether they have slightly different shapes. The main obstacle we're having is that, um, by some estimates, to conserve each jar costs um, over $10,000. So we're trying to uh, figure out how to overcome that financial barrier. Finally, the, uh, the jars, oops, that kind of got cut off, but in this antechamber and even right here at the entrance, uh, they were the jars that had pretty much all the ingredients. So how do we reconstruct this? Um, what, I, what we believe is that the main road is toward the back here through this so-called perhaps a service entrance. They brought in the jars here, the new wine jars coming from the vineyards. And then at whatever point there was a, a wine master of sorts that then processed this wine at this uh, installation. There's a platform right here. That's where dippers and small bowls and all kinds of other things were found. They're doing something to the wine here, and then once it's finished, we think they're bringing it to this antechamber, which then leads straight to that banquet hall. So it's one of the first instances where we can, based upon the residue analysis, reconstruct not just what they contain, but how uh, their immediate surroundings were, were used and how this wine installation slash cellar functioned. Um, this is just the start of things, and we hope that additional studies uh, will continue into the future. Which leads to the next question of where uh, we're headed in the future. And in order to, to plot that, we got to study the history of viticulture uh, and the possible reintroduction of these varieties based upon this study. In a fascinating twist, uh, we were all quite surprised about this. But uh, after over a century of, 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 of disappearing, um, what's not well known is that in Israel and the Southern Levant in general, uh, vineyards disappeared after the Islamic conquest for cultural reasons. And it was 
not until the 19th century that uh, Baron de Rothschild, uh, from his uh, chateaus in Bordeaux, imported his own grapes, uh, his own vines, to the Holy Land. And that remains the basis to viticulture to this day in Israel. And immediately you can see this, this kind of irony where we know grapes originated in the region of the Upper Tigris River, so literally the back door, you know, the backyard, if I can say that, of Kabri. But those wines, those wine grapes aren't being used today in Israel. In fact, they're, they're using, for the most part, wine grapes from the Atlantic region of France. So right away you suspect that that's not ideal. A papyrus in the Zenon archive from Ptolemaic Egypt, dating to 256, it describes the ancient Beit Anath estate, an ancient name, uh, located just 15 kilometers to the southeast of Kabri. There's a, uh, an Arabic village there called Bayana. We think that's a remnant of that name. And it's outside the, the large town slash city of Carmiel in the Beit HaKarim Valley. And if you know uh, Semitic languages, like, and you recognize words like Carmiel, Beit HaKarim, they all relate to uh, uh, grape vines. But to this day, to my surprise, when I talked to our Fano analyst who comes, who lives in Carmiel, he said there's not a single vineyard in that valley today. So that's an interesting twist as well. Uh, this Ptolemaic Pyrus mentions 80,000 vines, uh, and the, the individual, uh, Glaucius, who uh, wrote this papyrus, uh, uh, this message back to Egypt, states that when he tasted this wine, it was indistinguishable from arguably the best wine of antiquity from the island of Hios. So fantastic wine being produced there, which stands in contrast to what most people agree is not the best uh, wine in Israel. And why is it so? We think it's because of this phenomenon where the Beit Anad estate was using wine grapes that had descended from centuries of development, acclimated to the, the dry area of the Galilee, but now they're using wine grapes acclimated to the Atlantic coast. To verify what we suspected, there was actually an excavation done in 2001 in the neighboring Tel to where we think this estate was. And the thing that jumped out of this immediately was the excavators went out of the way in this publication to state everything they found seems to be paraphernalia related, uh, related to viticulture. Uh, and it's a continuously occupied site. Most of the material was Hellenistic, but they kept on excavating. They found every period going all the way back to EB1B. And all the material seems to be related to viticulture. So true to its name, it seems to have been historically a major wine producing area. And because it stretches back all the way to EB1B, it could perhaps be where the wine that we found in our wine cellar came from. So that's the next step. If this grape DNA from our wine cellar can be isolated, and we found things like grape pips in there, in future seasons, it's possible that more closely related cultivars that are presently feral or surviving in European vineyards after export by Phoenicians and antiquity could be identified or even cloned and reintroduced. So our two-pronged effort next summer is, one, we'll be going to the, uh, the Beit HaKaram Valley looking for feral grapes, uh, taking samples, and I'll also be heading uh, to Crete, where I do field work. And based upon you know, different people like Herodotus, we know that Phoenicians uh, settled in particular the east part of Crete. Could we perhaps find also grapes there that come from this very region brought by Phoenicians, 
since copy really is in Phoenicia, um, and could they be more closely related to the ancient varieties? So whether Pharaoh from the local area or from places like Crete, uh, could we then give these samples and identify these grapes uh, related to uh, the, 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 the vineyards in Israel today and could they regrow grapes that are similar to the grapes used over um, 3,500 years ago, we hope. And you can see here in the map where things are. Here's Cabri at the head of the spring and uh, you can see exactly where we think um, this valley of grapes was. So next summer we'll walk along here. Uh, we've been told that there are feral grapes so hopefully we can take enough samples and compare them um, to what's going on uh, in the modern day. And you can see that, in fact, this is all Phoenicia. Uh, in addition to uh, the Xenon papyrus, there are, there are, there's a Sicilian poet. There's all these other people who mentioned these uh, bibline wines that were famous in the region of Phoenicia. And we think very much that Cabri is a part of that tradition, which is why it had uh, such good wine, we, we hope and think. Uh, I want to conclude uh, the last uh, five or ten minutes or so uh, and expand upon uh, this search for wine grapes. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning this isn't just a search for wine, but also for other organic commodities. So in addition to wine, uh, things like purple dye, which we know was a major uh, trade item throughout history. Uh, things like storax, which we think was a resin put into this wine, cedar oil, etc. So the two major areas that I'm, I'm focusing on is ancient Phoenicia, northern Israel, and then Crete, in particular East Crete. And that's, it's for that reason, um, and here's a map, uh, we've inaugurated what's called the Vinography of the Eastern Mediterranean Project. And you can see this, this well-known uh, trade route of the Phoenicians who started becoming active right around the time of our wine cellar. And they, in particular, became more famous later in antiquity, late Bronze Age forward, all, leading all the way, finally, of course, to the Punic Wars. Um, but here is the homeland of the Phoenicians. And we know with, with great certainty that the Phoenicians settled Crete. And could they have brought uh, grapes there that are still being used to make wine. And Satia, that eastern part of Crete, is known for fairly good wines to this day. Can we identify any of them? Uh, I'm collaborating with the UC Davis Mandavi Wine Institute and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Um, uh, it's Brendan Foley at Woods Hole. He's actually the one uh, excavating the, the Antikythera wreck. And he's actually an expert in wine amphoras. And we're hopefully, with his help and other people's help, like at UC Davis, be able to um, succeed in identifying these close uh, at least closer related cultivars to our own wine grapes from our cellar. So the two regions of focus, which happens to be the two areas where I work. And that's why last year we started field work in the Satia area. This, that's Satia behind us. Um, this area, the site of Petras, is, is interesting, but I'm interested in going more toward the countryside next summer where we can hopefully uh, find some of these, these grapes, which we think um, might be related to what produced our wine. We're also looking for things like purple dye. In fact, it's, uh, Herodotus mentions a purple dye dealer of Phoenician origins in this very area. And it just so happens that uh, if you look at the purple dye industry's evidence for it, most, a lot of it is in East Crete. 
which happens to be where the Phoenicians were active. In fact, the name Phoenicia relates to this purple dye. Uh, what the Greeks probably didn't realize in the classical period when they stated that the Phoenicians invite, invented purple dye is in fact, they did not invent purple dye, but we think it was in fact the Minoans of Crete. Uh, so literally in, right in front of them, um, we think that purple dye was found. There are other reasons to believe that. For one, uh, one limiting factor of a purple dye is this sea mollusk that produces them. Um, the quantity of sea mollusks, this murex, is dependent on coastline. And if you stretch out the coastline of, of Greece, including Crete, it, it would overlap Phoenicia a hundredfold. So obviously, this is where you would get the high quantity of murex. Why the center of industry moved to Phoenicia, that's another question that we'll have to address. Uh, so one of the sites I worked at to track down this trade of, and our origins of organic commodities is the site of, of Pesca here in the Gulf of Mirabello. Here is Satia, where I'm going to be searching for grapes this summer. Uh, we found uh, through uh, a rescue excavation this unique installation that's we think one of a kind, in, especially in Greece, but perhaps the entire Eastern Mediterranean, all these basins cut into bedrock. And at the bottom of a, what we think is a well were many, many murex shells. So right away we thought that this could be uh, the long elusive uh, textile dyeing industry that's mentioned in uh, Minoan documentation. And this, uh, we had to do ethnographic studies, ethnoarchaeology, so we found that in fact these murex are quite plentiful. You just kind of throw in a, a drumstick on a string, you pull it back up, and then you'll have, you know, 20 of these little critters clinging onto them. Uh, and as people have pointed out in antiquity, they are uh, quite smelly. Um, when we collected around 50 of them, we took them up to the courtyard above the village, and people in the surrounding area started complaining about the smell, and they were still alive. Uh, we uh, put them through different preparation processes, uh, the famous Aristotelian, where you kind of uh, milk them, and you can see how this mucus substance, uh, how little of this, of this dye. Um, by some accounts, you need tens of thousands of each of these murex uh, mollusks to produce one robe. Hence, why it's so valuable in, in antiquity and related to royal purple. Pliny also mentions it. Uh, they use the less um, delicate method of preparation. They they basically smashed them, put it through this process, and uh, I'm not sure if it's still being shown, but I'm sure it can be found on the internet. But there was a show on the History Channel called "The World's Worst Jobs," and one of them was purple dye maker. Uh, in addition to the smell. Uh, one of the ways, at least according to this special, that they knew that the purple dye was done was by tasting it. So it couldn't have been very pleasant. And I'll show you from our own experience why it's so unpleasant. So here they are. We're smashing it with a, with a you know, bona fide stone tool, and here's the mix. Uh, Tom was one of my, is one of my grad students. He actually was being helped by his now wife, and the reason why she's not uh, in the photo is because she's just to the side here throwing up. Um, it's an incredibly terrible job, and it smells like nothing uh, you can ever imagine. And I have two kids, so <laughs> this is going to this poster is going to be presented for those of you who will be there at, in New Orleans at the 2005 uh, APA AIA, 
and it's really fun. It's, it's these vessels we found in this dye installation. In addition to purple dye, and we have a jar here that was full of purple dye. This jar is probably around half a meter tall. How many mollusks went into producing that much dye is unfathomable. Can you imagine if somebody had dropped that? Um, uh, we think that's the jar that contained purple dye. But in addition to purple dye, um, we think, I, I mean, with some certainty based on diagnostic compounds, it also had red matter, uh, yellow weld, which just happens to be um, in depictions of Minoan textiles since they don't survive at places like Malkata, the, 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 the palace of Amenhotep III in western Thebes of Egypt. The, tech, the Minoan textiles being depicted often have like a yellowish, a red color, and a purple kind of color, which we think relates to these textiles. Uh, but one of the happiest occurrences in, of this study was this very interesting triple vessel. Originally, we thought we were studying three cups. Later on, when they were conserved, since we, we, we take samples so early in the process and can't identify the objects often, in fact, this is a so-called triple or often called a trick vessel. These have been excavated uh, sporadically. They're not very common for over 100 years. People have never surmised what their function uh, was originally. These two vessels in back through a singular hole is connected to this front vessel. And in a really neat twist, uh, you can barely make it out, but the bottom of this vessel, which we didn't realize until later on after we studied it once the analysis was done, it has like a purplish red hue to it. And this vessel has, it's very clean. Uh, and what certainly is going on is there seems to be evidence for urine in here. And this just has purple dye. And they must have, in order for it to um, work properly, um, they had to be mixed not too uh, uh, long before its use. So they also kept them separate because you don't want them to react right away. And then once, you're, once you pour urine and your purple dye in here, you pour it forward, you mix it, and then, then you use the dye. Why do you need a urine? And people like Plenty mentioned this. It's a mordant that allows uh, purple dye to, to actually stick to the wool. So that's what we think this vessel was used for. And it makes sense. These are not large vessels, as you can see. And when you see Minoan textiles, they're not making large robes um, in these depictions, they're usually uh, accents and trim. So in a small vessel like this, they're probably making just small bits of, uh, of purple. And the larger jars um, like this are being used for the more common, uh, more readily available red and yellow, which come from plants. So we, we think we've uh, kind of solved the mystery of, the, of this triple vessel. Uh, we're also looking for things like storax. And in a, in a convenient twist, uh, when we did a collaboration with the Museum of Science, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit, we analyzed some pottery, uh, organic residue analysis, but also petrographic and SEM analysis of thin sections. And then, lo and behold, uh, these had storax in them. So in this case, it seems to, we know from documents storax was used as a preservative, like a resin, but it's also used for perfumes. That certainly is what's going on with these little tiny vessels. This tiny Egyptian-type style jar had honey in it. So this fits very much in line with the ingredients in uh, the, the, the wine cellar. What that leads us to believe is that there are certain ingredients that were widely known, but they had various functions in antiquity that we're just discovering today. 
uh, cedar of Lebanon grows in Phoenicia, famous in that area. We think it's in uh, the wine cellar. There are two explanations for it. One is that it could have been used somehow uh, for its uh, psychoactivity. It could have been used as a preservative. Um, the other uh, suspicion is that the wine vats themselves, the presses, could have been made out of cedar wood. We found cedar wood in the site burnt from other areas in the past. Uh, why we uh, suspect that is if you go to Crete, for instance, there have been, in all of Minoan Crete, if I remember correctly, there's been 81 uh, vats found, ceramic vats, that possibly could be used for wine. Many of them probably could have been used for things like perfumes and mixing. So even the 81 uh, aren't guaranteed all to be used for pressing grapes. But let's say even the 81 were. There's no way that all of Minoan Crete over many centuries was producing their, their wine from only 81 surviving examples. So that means that there had to have been another method of pressing uh, these grapes. And one of the um, ideas is using things like cedar of Lebanon and oak, because they would add things like tannins and et cetera. So that might be where our evidence for cedar oil is coming from. Uh, in, the, in the, the wine jars. We have to try to figure that out because there's no clear um, means of saying did they add it as a preservative or did they actually, it was, was it just a byproduct of the pressing process. Uh, I'm also working in another part of Phoenicia in, at Tel Kedesh, which is Bronze Age, but it stretches all the way to the Hellenistic era. Here's Andrea Berlin, who's focused on the Persian Administrative Center. And we think we solved another mystery. Uh, these famous Phoenician amphoriscoi made in Akko, right near Kabri, uh, traded all around the Mediterranean. Whenever I hear that type of background, I get immediately fascinated, a commodity that's quite important. So in the past, we've always studied the vessel, but surely antiquity was the actual contents that were important. Uh, Sharon Herbert and Andre Berlin, they found these amphoriscoi here at Kadesh, but also at Tel Anafa. And they're always found in the lower level with uh, hundreds of bullae. And what we found is that they contain cedar oil, which would support the idea that it contains a commodity that can't be found elsewhere in the Mediterranean. Why else would it be shipped to Olympia? But what's it used for? Um, when you look, unfortunately, I don't have the, the, the slide. Uh, it, when you read documents like people like Ovid, they mention if you really want to preserve your uh, papyri, your documents well, you use the best, which is Phoenician cedar oil. And that's what we think uh, these were used for, and it connects well with the bullae found at these different sites. So this is really just a start in many ways. The search continues in Crete and the Levant. We think that uh, in addition to the wine cellar, there are other storage rooms around there that reveal things like olive oil and whatever, but we also think this is gonna lead to a whole bunch of other discoveries that are only uh, documented in, in, in literature and we hope to verify those things um, in, the, in, the, in the upcoming years. Thank you very much.